0: Let's continue our study of fullness. Today, we begin another subset. We've spent uh, several weeks, two or three weeks, well, three weeks, I think, in introduction. And then we spent about 11 weeks studying the great words of the Christian faith. In that study, we talked about what God has done for us. And uh, today, I want to begin... uh, five or six part thing about the journey, the movement. Now that we know what we are, now that we know what has happened to us, we want to begin movement. So we want to talk about the journey. Uh, today we're going to talk about the purpose of the wilderness. We're going to talk about um, in the coming weeks how to have stamina in the journey, how to deal with roadblocks. Uh, the three most important things to remember on your journey: the real church, why we gather, and we're going to talk about reward. So we're going to we're going to focus now instead of looking and beholding at what we are, we're going to follow the saints as they begin to move toward this idea of fullness. I want us to get the Lord's prayer ready, and uh, but I need to say a couple of things first. Number one. Thank God for VBS and the phenomenal results for our children. Thank you to Pastor Bella and um, all, and Adam and all the workers that made it a success. Uh, I am overwhelmed by the reports that I got. I was off uh, visiting family and and. Uh, on vacation most of the week. I wasn't here, but I got regular updates and I am so impressed. I want to thank Pastor Corey for correcting any errors in doctrine that I may have presented last week. No, fantastic job, Corey. Great message, great message. Um, I want you to know how missed you are. You know, um, I've been here a long time and you think, well, you know, they get tired of me saying this, but it's your fault. You, you're you the ones that make me cry. I miss you guys so much when I'm not here. And I just want you to know that this has been a very busy time um, for our church. The last couple of months has just been off the charts with stuff that we had to deal with. Um, I think I've struggled because I haven't even been to be with people as much as I want to, but um, I think most of the pastors have been struggling with that, but I want you to know that you are, are loved, you are cared for, you are prayed for, you mean more to us than, um, than we are able to say, and I just wanted to say, I missed you, and I'm sure glad to be home, and we're going to get started with fullness. Let's look to the screen, and let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven Father, take the word that is before us today. Help me to preach well. Help these precious folks to hear well. And may the purposes of the Holy Spirit be accomplished for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. One of the most powerful passages of Scripture as far as relation goes and the work of the Holy Spirit Um, is actually modeled by Jesus when he is walking uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus with those two disciples. Now, we know the story. We've preached about it. Uh, We've studied it. We have. Some of us have been on a walk called the Emmaus Walk, and it's been a tremendous time for us. But the thing about the uh, road to Emmaus is not just the resurrection of Jesus and not just the explanation of Scripture that, boy, I, it says that beginning with the Old Testament, at the beginning and working the way through, uh, beginning with Moses and then going to the prophets, Jesus used that uh, roughly five and a half, six mile walk to explain to them what had just happened. Now, we, I would love to hear that sermon. It's got to be the greatest sermon ever preached. To hear Jesus explain the Old Testament concerning himself. I would have loved to have heard that. But I, I want you to understand one of the reasons that that message on the road to Emmaus is so special is that Jesus realized, he could realize the condition of their hearts. Now, as Jesus began to talk, those men said, Didn't our hearts catch fire and burn within us? as He talked to us. And that's what we wish all preaching did. It's what we wish all Bible study did. <coughs> but it was so special for this reason. The Bible says those men were discouraged. They were in despair. They had put all their eggs in the basket of Jesus. And it appeared that Jesus' life came to an early and abrupt end, and they felt hopeless. They said, we supposed that this would be the one that God sent, but he was crucified, he's been in the grave for three days, and we are we, we are hopeless, we are forlorn. And by the time they come to the end, Jesus is breaking bread with them. Their eyes are open. They see who He is. They realize that their hope is not in vain. The hopelessness disappears. The despair disappears. And they're aflame with the promise of God all over again. And I want to tell you that happened. Oh, there's several things we could talk about. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of God. But basically, what Jesus did on that walk that could have been as long as two hours. If I ever preach two hours, just I'm trying to be like Jesus. And uh, what happened, what happened is that they had been through the dashing of their hopes, and Jesus took time to explain to them what happened. What I believe the Lord would have us understand today, I'm not trying to sound like a broken record. I'm not trying trying to dwell in the past. But I think that sometimes before we really understand what has happened, uh, or excuse me, what is coming, we need to understand what has happened. Deuteronomy, one of my favorite books uh, of, of the law, um, it's we get the name Deuteronomy. It's from two words: the, number two or second, and then nomos, the law. And basically, it's Deuteronomy says the second law, but it was not a second law. It's not another law. It was the second giving of the law. It was the second giving of the law. <laughs> and in the book of Deuteronomy, God had Moses give a recap of the Ten Commandments. A recap of some festivals and feasts, the activities. It was for a new generation. The old generation got it originally. They lived the original version, but now they were dead. And the new generation was about to go into the land. And guys, not only did the Lord restate, now this is the law. Remember this. The 10 commandments are given again. Remember this. Not only was God saying, remember this, God took at least a couple of chapters, and this is what he said. I know how you've lived in this wilderness. I know how difficult it has been. I know that you are in a place that if I didn't provide it, you wouldn't have water. If I didn't provide the manna, you wouldn't have food. If I didn't strengthen your hand and send my angels, you would have never defeated the enemies that came against you. I know what the wilderness is like, but I want you to know why you came through the wilderness. Loved ones, please allow me to express my heart again. I know what the last two and a half years, and longer for some of you, but society in general, the whole world shifted two years ago. And, um, and, and it began earlier than that. I think what it has done has produced division in our country, politically, unlike we've ever seen since the Civil War at least. I think it has produced a weakness in the church because I do believe this is the judgment of God. I've said that before and I'm not going to camp out there today. But what it has done, I believe that I believe that 2020 showed what we were. And I believe that 2021 showed us what we can be. And I believe 2022 is just pushing us. It's pushing us, saying, which are you going to be? What are you going to make up your mind to do? And we've got to make a decision. Are we going to lean into bitterness and unforgiveness, finger pointing, fault finding, or are we going to let God do something incredible in our lives? You see, the road to Emmaus was filled with broken-hearted people that didn't understand the whole evangelization of the world was about to break forth before them. The day of Pentecost was just down the road a little ways. And the children of Israel in Deuteronomy, all they knew is what their life had been. They were thankful that God had got them through it, but they still, this is, you know, is this what we left Egypt for? And God said, no, you're about to take on the promised land. And and remember, promised land is not heaven. Uh, There are giants there. There are mean people there. There are enemies there. There are battles there. There's famine there. There's giants there, there's wookalars there, there's Klingons there, all kinds of things in the land. That is not heaven. That is where we're going to live. But God said, I will give you victory. They're about to have a home that they had never known. They were about to have possession and riches that they had never known. But they had to, before they could go in and take the land, God said, it's necessary for you to understand what you have been through and loved ones I think I really do I believe that we are on the verge of a new age I believe that we are on the verge of a new era in our church and I know that sounds like just preacher talk I know it sounds like somebody asked me one time when I was a young pastor uh, the Lord had given me a word for him and they said you mean that are you just preaching You know, no, this is not just preacher talk. I believe that we are about to make a shift, but it's not gonna happen because of an election. Now, you know, I think elections are important. It's not gonna happen because of Wall Street. I think Wall Street's important. You're you're not gonna go out tomorrow and find gas for $1.80 a gallon. Or if you do, please call me immediately. And save me a place in line. <laughs> I'm not saying that there's about to be a shift and everything's going back to normal. I don't know that we will ever go back to the normal that we've known. I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest. You say, well, that's negative. I, no, I, I'm, it's positive. I'm, I'm positive we're never going back. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I don't know what the future will look like. We may never see things that we used to see. Or, or we may. But what I'm saying is that I think the church in general, I think pastors in general, I think prophets in general, I think so many, though their hearts long for God, I think that we, we're, we're, even when we see something, we're too quick to interpret it and often we interpret it wrongly. And I'm, I'm not saying that false forfeit, prophets are false. I'm not saying that pastors are false. I'm saying that we we have leaned heavily into the arm of the flesh to interpret what we're in, and we need somebody to sit us down and say, this is what you've been through, and this is the purpose of it. And we may not understand all of what's going on, but we know that God is faithful. God is both faithful. Sovereign and God is in control, and God is uh, in charge. And we have the church instead of trying to pull in close to God, we've tried to redesign God so that we can understand things that we don't understand. And guys, we don't even do good once we get past long division with natural stuff. So I think it's more important with us spiritually to understand what has happened, to understand what we've come through. Moses said, you're about to inherit the land and you're going to be victorious. Why? Because of what you've just come through. Jesus said to the disciples on the Emmaus road, the greatest days are ahead and the kingdom of God is about to expand. Why? Because of what you've just come through. Didn't it say that he explained to them how Messiah must suffer? And loved ones, sometimes we don't like it in our Pentecostal theology, but sometimes we need to humble ourselves and say, Lord, show me why why I have been suffering. Show me why this difficulty has come. And I want to give you a promise. There are two things that are burning in my heart. It's not where I want to stay. And by the way, don't worry about the outline. You know how it is. Anytime I give them an outline early, you know, like I'm out of town, like I gave this two weeks ago, There's all kinds of stuff in there. Uh, Some of this, some of this we'll deal with. Some I haven't got it settled. I might go this way, might go that way, might go that way. So I just give you all of it. So don't panic when in 30 minutes, we're still on page one. Okay, don't panic. And the scary thing is that I've added so much to your notes. They may not even fit. Just hang loose today as, as we go through this. Um, The Lord It's just warmed my heart with this passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 2. And I believe that this is to be more than just a little refrigerator magnet. I believe God is saying this to the people of God. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame kindle on you. That's Isaiah 43 verse 2. I believe the Lord has also put on my heart this promise and it is from the Psalms and it says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. I look at my journal and the Lord has spoken to me a couple of times. This is the era of reaping what your tears have sown. I don't understand what that means. I think I know what it means for me. I think I know what it means for this church. I, I, when I was watching the choir sing today, I was just reminded, I, I pray for you daily. I pray for the church every day, but I pray for every one of you individually, systematically. And it just seems that for the last few weeks, there are some that I know you are faithful and I know you have poured out your heart for an unsaved loved one or for, a, or for a, 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 a need in your life, for healing or for a relationship or whatever it is. And I know that you love the Lord and I know you've been praying and I know you've been praying and I know you've been praying and, and I have seen you in these altars praying. I've seen you in my prayer time praying as I, as I look over the picture list and, and, um, and I pray for you. And the Lord has really hammered it home to me like it's really important that this is the era of reaping the seed, the harvest of seed sown by tears. The, the writer of the psalm says when uh, someone goes forth bearing precious seed, they go forth weeping. Uh, but when they see the harvest of their tears, You see, why would they weep? Because the indicator was that they were in a tough time and they could have used the seed for food. They could have used the seed to meet their own individual need. Are you following me? But they understood that the only way for the next generation to survive, the only way for the next season to come to pass is that they let go of that seed and they will weep as they plant the seed Deltar said as a missionary in Africa, he saw the Bedouin when when they had barely enough to survive. They could have eaten the grain. Little children would follow their fathers in the field, crying for some of the grain. And the father would weep because he knew if he didn't spread the seed, there would be no harvest. There might be food today, but there would be no harvest next season. And I think about people like Reverend and Mrs. Hale that were Baptist pastors in Texas and they had been in the foster care system trying to help. They, they uh, just tried to do what they could. They'd help one here, help one there. And a little child came to them. His mother raised him for a, 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 a few months or years. I don't remember. I think it was months. Uh, anyway, he was like a, 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 preschooler and they took this little boy into their home and they wanted to adopt him. They fell in love with him. God spoke to him that this child had such a special plan, special purpose. He was a product of rape. He would have been probably aborted by, in today's society, um, uh, be- because of the of the different laws, in those days, he wasn't. he was not aborted. And it looked like, The mother's life was broken. It looked like his life was broken. And the Hales loved him. They loved him as their own child. And God said, I have a destiny for this child. And they tried their best. They raised him for years and years and years. And then later something happened. He went back to his mom and he was an unconverted child, but he went back to his mom and the situation just got worse and worse. And she said, we cried and prayed prayed and interceded for, for him every day. Our little James, we prayed for him every day. And then I don't remember all the details, but word came to them <coughs> that little James was now a young teenager and he was going to be in church that night, I believe it was, I believe it was evening service. And they had auxiliaries that met before church. There were prayer meetings before church. They had prayed for years. And the story goes that Mr. Reverend Hale, the pastor, went to prayer in his office. And Mrs. Hale went to everybody, every group that was meeting in church. And she was weeping uncontrollably. She couldn't see a thing without her glasses. And they said for an hour and a half before service, she had to hold her glasses in place because the tears were so copious that they would... Where her lenses touched her face. And she could not see without her glasses, but she could not see because of the tears, but it was her best of two options. And she went to everybody holding her glasses in place as the tears flowed. She said, Little James is coming home tonight. He's coming to be in the service tonight. I don't know if we'll ever see him again, but this, the Lord is telling me, is the night when his destiny will be determined. Tonight is the night when he will either obey God or not obey God. And I'm begging you, whatever you had on the program tonight, will you please stop and will you please pray for little James? And to make a long story short, they, the choir sang, and Ms. Hale held her glasses and cried. The testimonies were given, Ms. Hale held her glasses and cried. The offering was received And Mama Hale was over there holding her glasses, just crying, pouring out her heart to the Lord. She wasn't praying out loud, but she was saying, oh, God, save my James, save my James. We haven't seen him in years, but save my James. And they did have a brief reunion before church, but she was praying for God to move. And to make a long story short, as the altar call was given, James came surrendered his heart to the Lord and she cried and blubbered a glorious mixture of tears and snot and sweat. And she held him as James made his decision to follow the Lord. And you know him as James Robinson of James Robinson Ministries. I love this. I want to tell you something. There are things in your life that you have brought to the Lord and you are exhausted There are things you've brought to the Lord and it sounds like he said, I will do this, but he's not only not done it, it sounds like the devil's the only one that's been active. But God says, when people learn to pray like Ms. Hale, when people learn to cry like Ms. Hale, we are entering an era when your seeds of tears will bring forth a harvest. I don't mean by that there's something magical about tears, I don't mean by that if you you know don't have tear ducts and you can't cry that you can't get an answered prayer. But what I am saying is this. God is saying that he has brought us through what he has brought us through because we are about to begin to receive things that we've been praying for for so long. We haven't received it and what the enemy has tried to do for the last two and a half or three years He has done everything in his power to rob you of hope. He has done everything in his power to make you feel that nothing that God promised me is happening. It's the work of the Antichrist as described in the book of Daniel where it says his job is to wear out the saints of the Most High. Loved ones, we need to to understand that sometimes the enemy pulls us apart and makes us fall to temptation. Sometimes the enemy silences us with the hand of persecution and those things are real. Those things are real. But sometimes there is a hand of God on you that you can't even see and all the enemy is able to do is just begin to wear you down. So God says, you're about to have the greatest days of your life. You are about to own land that is a gift from God to Israel. He says, you're about to live in houses that you didn't build. You're about to plow in fields that you did not clear. The greatest days are ahead of you. But I want you to understand why you've been through what you've been through. In Deuteronomy, you have this in your notes, don't you? Deuteronomy eight one through eighteen. Um, in the first section, verses one through five, he says, now "I want to. I want you to know. I know where you've been. I know where you've been." He says, remember in verse 2, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to be hungry and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors, nobody in your history knew anything about. But I took care of you. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. He says, you've been in a place that was hell on earth. But you survived it. Why? Verse 5, because you know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son. And that word disciplines means, it can mean corrective, but it can be trains or nurtures or educates his son. The Lord, your God disciplines you. So what does God say? The first thing he says is you've been to a place that's hell on earth and I put you there taking care of you and teaching you. Um, In verse uh, 6, he says, not only did I take care of you and keep you, but I have brought you through the wilderness for a better place. He says in verse 6 and 7, you've been through this because the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And then he describes the good land. He says, you wouldn't have the good land if you had not been through the wilderness, And loved ones, this is something we Pentecostals have to wrap our theological heads around. We believe so much in the blessing of the Lord. We believe so much in the favor of God. And I do believe in those things. But we have allowed it to create a false theology in our lives that we never suffer. And there's no wilderness in our lives. We've talked about the fellowship of his suffering. I don't believe there's any virtue for suffering just for suffering's sake. I don't believe we say, oh, God must really love me. He gave me cancer. Or, or I, I must be really close to God. I've got all kinds of problems. And I'm in the fellowship of his suffering. Uh, loved ones, those are, those are things we don't know how to answer. Those are speculations we lack the wisdom to evaluate. But I do believe this about the fellowship of his sufferings. Those that have entered the fellowship of his sufferings, number one, they experience sufferings. And number two, they stick with it as they go through the sufferings. I think the fellowship of his sufferings is more about being faithful in the midst of suffering than the suffering itself. I really do believe that. Um, But that's what he says. Then when he gets to verse 10, he says, When you have eaten and are satisfied and you praise the Lord for the good land, be careful that you don't forget God. Obey God, remain humble before him. And he said, When you get to the land God is taking you to, where we're headed, he says, you will be tempted to become proud and think it's your management or your organization or your strength or your tenacity. He says in verse 17, you'll be tempted to say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Uh, And if you ever forget him, God will take you out of the land. Um, The promise, commandment number five, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long on the land. See, I thought that meant I'll live to be an old man if I honor father and mother. That might be a dynamic that's in there, but I've known a lot of good people that honored father and mother that didn't live to be old. I really believe when God said, your days will be long in the land, I believe he was talking about the, 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 the promise of being in the promised land. He was saying, if you want to inherit the blessing of the Lord, if you want to stay in the land that God has given you, one of the steps you've got to take is to honor father and mother because I'm all into generations. Now, What I I want us to understand is that in Deuteronomy and and in the gospel where it talks about Jesus going in the wilderness, it makes it clear, why does God send us to the wilderness? So that we can learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God takes us to the wilderness because number one, He wants us to become humble as we realize that nothing I have can get me through the wilderness. I have to depend on Him my politics can't, my intellect can't, my education can't, my philosophy can't, my determination can't, my personality can't. There is one thing that gets you through life and it is the Word of God, not the Word of man. Loved ones, God in His love, whether it was Israel coming out of Egypt, headed for the Promised Land, or whether it was the disciples on the Emmaus Road coming out of the Passion Week, headed toward Pentecost, or whether it's where you and I are right now, God says, you want to inherit this. I want you to inherit this, but you can't handle this until you've walked through this. And you never get that until you understand the purpose of the wilderness. Now, I need to, to give some disclaimers um, very quickly. Don't worry, I know what I'm doing I think, well, anyway, when it says God, just points of clarification that'll help it make more sense. Whenever God says, I brought you through the wilderness in order to reveal whether you will do this or that, God never puts us through things because he needs to know what's in our heart. The idea of, of, so that you will, you know, so God says, so that I will know. It's the idea of making known or revealing. God, God isn't in a situation where I don't know if Corey's going to be faithful or not. I just don't know. No, God knows. God knows if Corey's going to be faithful or not. He knows if I'm going to be faithful or not. But what the purpose of the wilderness is, is to make sure you know what's in your heart. To make sure others know what's in your heart. Because if something's there that doesn't belong there, God will show it to us in order for us to repent. And and turn to Him with our whole heart. But God's not in a quandary. Some of His leading is peaceful. Some of His leading through the wilderness is born of difficulty and discomfort. I learned that from my great-grandpa. He said, God leads us like I lead my cows. And I said, I don't understand. He said, well, watch me lead these cows. Oh, cows! Oh, cows! And I was amazed at how many cows started running to the barn. Because when he said, oh, cows, that meant it was time to eat. Of course, he had ulterior motive. He was going to milk them or whatever, but they, all he had to do with some of them is just yell. Uh, others, he had to get out in the field and herd. Come on, Bessie. Come on, Eunice. Come on. Whoever the cow's name was, let's go. And they would kind of go reluctantly, but he would just kind of herd them along. Some he had to get behind and kind of motivate. Some would just follow him, but they wouldn't come at a calling. Others had to have a rope tied around their neck. That was my mama's job. Uh, If somebody just said, "Well, I just don't believe there's anything better in the barn than there is here in this field, my mama and some of the other kids My aunts and uncles would go and put a rope around the neck and and with just a little prompting, they'd come with a rope around their neck. But there were some church members, I I mean, some cows (laughs) that they, you tied the rope around their neck, but then you had to tie the other end of the rope around the bumper on the truck. (laughs) And he would get them there that way. And loved ones, we all have moments when my sheep know my voice and we just come running. All we have to have is the sweet whisper of the Holy Spirit and we come running. Sometimes circumstances have to push us a little bit and we say, oh yeah, I need to get in the barn right now. And then other times I've been there, you've probably been there. You plowed the field as you stiffened your legs and the, and the truck pulled you to where you belong. But central to the idea of being in the wilderness is the idea to humble you, to put your dependency on the Lord. Now, now guys, listen to me, please. I, I, I have had to learn and relearn and relearn this lesson, and I'm sure I'll have to relearn it again. This is so central to what God wants to do in your life. You've got to learn that when you're in the wilderness, you have to humble yourself. And you have to listen to the Lord. Churches get in trouble when they when they try any other method of going forward. We have to humble ourselves, we have to be able to say, like they said in the book of Acts, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They never said, well, wisdom tells you you ought to do this. No, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And I'm telling you, because I love you, we have to settle these things in our hearts. And the wilderness is going to bring up two questions in your life. Are you still with me? Okay. Um, The first question it brings up is what will trials produce in me? That's the first thing the wilderness does. When I'm going through tough times, what does it produce in me? When I have bad times, what is going to surface? The wilderness was also designed to ask the question, what will prosperity produce in me? You see, God sends you to a place, all of us, where you are out of control. Sometimes it will be you're out of control with blessing Sometimes it's, you're out of control with trials, but the purpose of it, God hasn't lost power. God's not even necessarily punishing you. The the purpose of it is to show you what's in your heart. And that's what 2020 has done. That's what 2021 has done. It has showed you what's in your heart. It has showed me what's in my heart. It showed every church that will listen what's in their heart. And loved ones, we're, we're not going to ha- have things set right when this gets right, or that gets right, or that gets right, or that gets right. All of those things, oh, a good economy is better than a bad economy. Uh, good politics are better than bad politics. You know, I mean, there, yeah, there's definitely good and bad or better and worse. All of that's out there, but we've got to get our eyes off of that. I don't, I don't mean oblivious to it. You need to vote. Elections have consequences, and it matters who's in the White House. It matters who our judges are. It matters who's in the governor's mansion. Now, it's up to you as a child of God to determine what the will of the Lord is. Um, That's not my place to tell you who you should vote for. That's something you've got to settle between you and God. But I do know this. I know enough to tell you this. You've got to stop putting your trust in that stuff. You've got to stop thinking that if we can get the right politicians or the right stocks or the right whatever, that everything will straighten up. No, this is something where nothing will get straight until we get straight. And you know what? We may be in a system that will never get straight. You say, well, what do we do then? You stay straight. You stay straight. If the government's not straight, you be sure your house is straight. If your neighbors aren't straight, you be sure your house is straight. I mean, when it boils down to it, all we can do is change one person at a time. And then through our influence, we can change our families And then if we get enough families, we might can change a neighborhood. And if we can change enough neighborhoods, maybe we can change a city. Enough cities, maybe a state. And enough state, maybe the nation. But the bottom line is we are tapping into stuff that might or might not work. And we're not even understanding why God has brought me through the wilderness. We learn that the work of the Holy Spirit is inextricably linked to the wilderness experience. When when Jesus was uh, the, the Holy Spirit came upon him, you know he was. We know he was conceived by the Spirit. He's born by the Spirit. He was, uh, for for lack of a better term, we'll call it filled with the Holy Spirit. Because after he was baptized in water, the Spirit settled on him and remained. And boy, that's perfect. That's just it. Man, you can tell Jesus was assembly of God. He's following the pattern (laughs) just like we teach it. For those of you that don't know, I'm joking. But (laughs) the first thing that happened to him after the Spirit came upon him and said, I can live in this vessel forever. In the Old Testament, he would come, do his work in someone, and then depart not in a bad sense but just lift off the person but he settled on jesus i can stay here forever now there's a sense in which the spirit stays with us forever but jesus did it without ever offending the spirit or ever grieving the spirit but the very first thing the spirit did i'm going to send you into the wilderness I don't understand how this can be because Jesus, though He was fully man, He was fully God. I don't know how He learned the disciplines of the Spirit. I I don't know, but the Bible does say that there are some things He learned through suffering that He might not have learned any other way. It's not important that we say it was this, this, and this. The importance is that even Jesus needed the wilderness experience. And I want to tell you, if Jesus needed the wilderness experience, I guarantee you, I do. Now, there's other notes that we won't uh, won't dwell on right now. I want to go to the end of the lesson. And I want to talk to you about those five Christian life examples. Let me, let me check a verse here since I'm not following the outline. Let me be sure I've got what I wanted to do. Yeah, okay. Um, the Christian life lessons. Remember now, we're talking about the journey. Before Now, we're going to take the journey. We're headed toward fullness. But again, my proposition today is that before we can experience fullness in its fullness, before we can even understand fullness we have to understand what God's been doing in me Uh, you you know have you ever rebuked the devil I mean I mean spittle in your beard sweat in your eye hair in your eye rebuke the devil I bind you Satan I rebuke you and and then after you just exhausted yourself you're (sighs) only to find out that the thing you're rebuking was the hand of God working in your life I know I had a major appliance tear up at the same time another major appliance tore up well that's obvious that's the work of the devil (laughs) and sometimes it is I mean sometimes appliances can be demon possessed Uh, like your dryer Where, where do you think all those socks go that you miss one sock. I had a preacher friend that said it was demons sent to torment us. I'm kidding, okay? I don't <laughs> believe that. But I had two major, and, and they one backed up the other, and I thought, I'm, in, I'm dead in the water here. This is the devil, and I'm rebuking the devil. And uh, the person fixed one thing, and he said, oh, this, this, is, this is nothing. It's just, and he told me what it was. I won't bore you with the details. But he said, it's, it's, it's fixable. This, it, it wasn't that much. And I thought, oh, praise God. And then I thought, what about the other thing? He said, oh, that could be trouble. And he looked at it and said, this went out at the same time. I said, yeah, devil. He said, I'll tell you what I think. He said, I think it is providential it went out the same time this went out because I looked at it and I can fix this for $40. But if you had not done it early enough, you could have had to buy a whole new thing. <laughs> so I'm torn between do I say, well, thank you, devil? Or do I really believe that all things work together for good? Do I really believe that God will let something go out in order to keep it from being a massive problem later? Absolutely. My problem is I'm not good enough to to really know what's good and bad. I'm not smart enough to really know if it's right or wrong. I'm not spiritual enough to always know if it's God or the devil. So I've got to understand that when we go through the wilderness, I'm being taught, I'm being taught that I don't live by bread alone. I don't live by what I figure out here. I live by the word of God. I live by the spiritual dynamic. Okay, now let's uh, catch up with me now. Here's the Christian life lesson. Everything is by the grace of God. I know we say that all the time. Um, we really hit that heavy over the great words of the Christian faith. Uh, we're saved by grace uh, through faith, not of works. Everything's by grace. That's our baseline. But when I say everything's by the grace of God, I, I need us to look at it from the passage of De- Deuteronomy. Um That's not to say that I'm under grace and I just don't have any responsibility. I don't worry about anything. If God wants something to happen, he'll cause it to happen. It's not this blind sovereignty. No, when we talk about everything is by the grace of God, it's not to create carelessness, but it is to remind us to tap into the real source. We need to tap into the real source. Every victory we have is by God's grace. Everything. So that sounds so basic and so foundational that I won't stay on it more than 15 more seconds, but we have to understand that this life that we've made so difficult is really all by the grace of God. Okay, here's number two. There are lessons learned in the wilderness that cannot be learned any other place. (laughs) We may face the same things, even in the promised land. But the goal of the wilderness is to teach us how to depend on the Lord so that when we face them in the promised land, we'll know how to depend on the Lord. In the wilderness, they had no water, no food. They experienced disunity. They had to fight enemies. And isn't it awful that in the worst places, that's where God calls on you to develop disciplines? Um, Discomfort was there and dependency. See, they faced all of those things. So, And there was no better place to learn how to deal with them than in the wilderness. And God has let some of your worlds fall apart. God's let part of my world fall apart. And loved ones, it's because He wanted us in a place where we're utterly dependent on Him. Because we can learn in record time what we can't really learn anywhere else. I know that's not popular. But let me, let me give you an example, David and Saul. David was a kid. He was a kid. He was so much a kid that when the prophet Samuel wanted to meet with Jesse and his sons, it never occurred to, Dave, uh, to Jesse or David's brothers Never occurred to them to bring David in. Why? Because he's just David. He's not even a man yet. Maybe what they were thinking. Or if the prophet's looking for something, uh, I, I know. I know these other boys, but David. Let, let's, let's don't waste part. Let's don't. Let's don't waste part of the lamb on David. Let him work out in the field. Saul was chosen by the Lord. You got to remember, Saul was chosen by the Lord. He was a physical specimen that was magnificent. The average Jewish man in that day was about five and a half feet tall. He's head and shoulders above uh, them in height. That meant Saul is a, is a leader. He's, a, he's a th- at that just that right age, middle age, just that right age. David's a teenager probably. Saul's got that sweet spot of middle age and he's probably standing 6'2 to 6'4. He was like a giant. They thought he was a giant until we meet Goliath who was nine and a half feet tall. Saul, when you read the account, was a good administrator. He was a fantastic warrior. He had the support of Israel. And he had a spiritual anointing on him that it became a proverb in Israel. The spirit came on Saul. He began to prophesy. That wasn't his calling. He wasn't a, you know, a pastor or a prophet or a priest, but he began to act with spiritual abilities far beyond his level. And, and people in Israel, when you saw something that was amazing, you'd say, yeah, and Saul's one of the prophets. I mean, it's like, He's phenomenal. But something happened in his heart. Now, both Saul and David fell. Both Saul and David made mistakes. But the difference was that David, when he fell, he turned to God. Saul turned into a cover up. And Saul did it over and over and over. And David, every time he fell, he just kept turning, he kept falling into the arms of God. Are you hearing me? Yeah. Every person's gonna fall. The, 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 what matters is which direction you fall. You say, well, then what was the main difference between Saul and David? Guys, there's so many similarities. I think it boils down to one thing. David spent a decade in the wilderness. As far as we know, Saul spent no time in the wilderness. David was tried and proven Saul was just ushered in. He was an unproven king. And loved ones, I'm not telling you you can't be a pastor or you can't be a prophet or you can't be a Christian or you can't be a department leader. I'm not telling you you can't be any of that unless you go through the wilderness. I'm just telling you you're not equipped for it. You'll never be equipped for it. The Proverbs tell us, and or is it the Psalms? I forget. I should know my Bible better. In Proverbs or Psalms. <coughs> it says that the world groans under seven things. Seven things are just, they weigh everybody and everything down. And you know what one of the things was? It was when a slave becomes the king. Now, what, what does that mean, when a slave becomes a king? Was that a statement against slaves? No. What it was saying was this when a person who hasn't been conditioned for office becomes the king, it's a disaster because the slave has no point of reference for leadership. Now that's not, that wasn't a slam against slaves. It was just saying, when you ascend, and history shows that when someone ascends to power that has not been prepared for power, it's a disaster and I want to tell you one of the principles of the kingdom of God is this. If you want to serve the Lord in a place of prominence, and I don't think it's good to say, "Oh, I want to serve the Lord in a place of prominence." But if you want, let me put it to you this way, if you want to arise to the destiny that God has for you, you've got to spend time in the wilderness. Okay? Because there are lessons learned in the wilderness that cannot be learned any other place. Um Tony Evans was here the other day. I'm trying to quit. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to hurry so I can quit. Um, Tony Evans talked about, I, I think he called the, called it the manic mouse. Um, when I was growing up, the Pensacola Interstate Fair, I know the rite he's talking about. It's called the mad mouse. Mad mouse was a rite of passage. It was the most vicious. People got hurt on mad mouse. It wasn't a it was a... I mean, it hurt you. The first time I ever had to go to the chiropractor is after my first ride on Mad Mouse. I mean, I was, I was third grade and I had to go to the chiropractor. Well, that was, that was the ride every year of my childhood. Nothing got better than that. Nothing proved your manhood more than that. And, uh, I wrote it in the third grade, and um, you say, so you conquered it, so you wrote it every year. No, that's the only time I wrote it. I wrote it in the third grade, and if anybody asked me if I wrote Mad Mouse, of course. Of course. (laughs) I didn't tell them that it hurt me so bad I never got on it again. He said that he and his wife were in college and they were dating and he said, I loved her, but I don't think she loved me. And I, I wanted to hold her hand. I wanted to put my arm around her and it, she, she wasn't interested. And he said, I just realized I needed some help moving her close. He said, so I got her on the Mad Mouse, whatever his version of it was. And she, he said, we went on the Mad Mouse and the girl that wouldn't hold my hand By the time the ride was over, she was stuffed up in my armpit. And he said, wasn't long after that, she accepted a proposal of marriage. He said, I'll always be thankful for Mad Max, Mad Mouse. He said, it it got her close to me and gave me a chance for her to see how much I loved her. And of course, I doubt she would agree with that, that it took that, but... That was Tony Evans' point when he was here the other day. Can I I just tell you something? Because I think Tony Evans was a godsend. I think he's right. I think some of us are on the Mad Mouse, and we're complaining about the jerking, the teeth flying. We're complaining about being dislocated and having to go to a chiropractor. And I, I want to tell you what I think. I think God's got you on Mad Mouse just to get you to sit close. Sometimes he'll get us to sit close against our will. I mean, I believe that. You say, oh, that's, that, that's shallow Christianity. Well, it worked on me. I'll tell you that. And guys, the sooner we understand the tough places we're going through, if we can stop being mad at the politicians, even if we need to be mad with them about something, let it be the right kind of anger for the right reasons. If we can stop being mad at the church, if we can stop being mad at the stock market, if we can stop being mad at the oil companies or whoever you think is responsible for the $45 a gallon gas or whatever it is. The sooner we can understand that God made us a promise, and it wasn't a threat. It wasn't a threat. It was a promise. Everything and the world will be shaken. That's a promise, not a threat. Why is it a promise? Because he said, when I'm done shaking, you will understand that the only thing left in your life is that which is unshakable. Unshakable. You say, I just don't believe God makes us weak. Well, tell Jacob. He's wrestling with the Lord. That was his attempt. To, as primitive in faith as it was, he said, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. The angel of the Lord says, hey, it's almost sun up. you got work to do. i got to go. He says, I'm not letting you go. And the angel of the Lord just touches his hip right here. And the, and the hip separates. And Jacob walks with a limp the rest of his life. Can I tell you the truth? I'm beginning to learn. I, I don't know if you can trust people, don't limp. And people, people that limp, not always, but people that limp, I'm talking about spiritually, it's a token that they've been to the place where they'd rather be hurt by God than helped by somebody else. Okay. Here, here's the next one. Our time in the wilderness is usually proportional to how well we learn and how quickly. Now, now i got to give a disclaimer here because there is a time you have to spend in the wilderness. But now that doesn't mean you won't have refresher courses. Um, Jesus went into the wilderness to pray, but that was different than his 40 days in the wilderness. You're always going to find yourself in the wilderness over one thing or another. yeah, Always. But I'm talking about this initiation phase. Jesus' stay was 40 days. How long was Israel's? 40 years. You say, well, well, why was that? Well, we just don't learn as well as Jesus. You might say, well, well, that's true. But the path that God took them through and the plans to go in and possess the land, the sending of the spies. Do you realize that God only planned for Israel to be in the wilderness for a few weeks? I mean, uh, depending on, and we realize that those 10 tests had different, I mean, God could have done it this month instead of this month. But it was easily less than a year in the wilderness and probably was like four to six months at the most in the wilderness. That's that's what it appears. But they ended up 40 years. Why? Because the sooner we can learn, the sooner we can learn, the quicker we move into the land. And with Israel, they had 10 opportunities to really pass a test. And they failed all 10. I don't even know that they had to, to get 10 out of 10. I don't know. I know in Major League Baseball, if you, if you get hits three out of 10 times, you can go in the Hall of Fame. I mean, maybe that's the way it is. Maybe God was just looking for 300 hitters. I don't know. But I do know this. God is so committed to you. God loves you so much. And when I say you, I'm including me. God loves us so much that he will not let you out of the wilderness until you're ready to leave the wilderness. Oh, sometimes in the sovereign mercy of God, he may let us out for a while. He may say, go get some water. When I was playing high school basketball, I know this is gross. I'm just reminiscing. I went to my high school this past week. Coach was, was a believer that dehydration makes you strong. <laughs> and we would, I, I talked to him years later, I, and it, it, they had Gatorade, they had water, everything on the sidelines. I said, why didn't we ever have any of that? He said, oh, it was a different philosophy. I said, How, I said what made you let us go finally to get some water? He said, well, you were one of the guys I watched. And I, I said, so I did so good that I, you rewarded? He said, no. He said, when you were about to pass out, he said, I noticed you would get your jersey and you'd wad it up into a ball, stick it in your mouth and suck the sweat out. <laughs> he said, and I figured, well, if Chitty's, res- you know, has resorted to drinking sweat, they probably need water. Oh, sometimes God will say, oh, you can't live on sweat, you know. But loved ones, we want to understand our time in the wilderness is proportional to how well we learn. Number four, the inheritance that comes after the wilderness is far more important than we realize. Again, I am not, I'm, I'm afraid I've been so misunderstood from time to time. I'm not opposed to the favor of the Lord. I'm not opposed to God being good to his people. You know, the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard, not the way of the believer. I, I believe in the blessing of the Lord. But I, I also think that we, our theology that we've adopted has led us to believe that God's pleasure is indicated by how easy we have it. And sometimes that's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's two sides of a coin and it takes real maturity to figure it out, and we don't always figure it out. There's the blessing of the Lord for doing right. There's if it doesn't rain, call upon me, and I'll tell you what you're doing wrong, and it'll rain again. Yeah, there's that correlation of good and bad, but sometimes there are those necessary paths. Sometimes there are those necessary journeys that we have to take. Well, we, we've got we've to go on. I don't mean to wear you out, But it's far more important than we think. And here's the last thing always remember what the wilderness taught you. Always cherish the gifts she gave you. Always cherish the gifts she gave you. One of my heroes in the Assemblies of God's missionary, Lillian Trasher, she's long in heaven, but there's an orphanage in Egypt named after her. She was a missionary there. And Lillian Trasher was known for not only being a mama to the children of Egypt and for being responsible for tens of thousands. And when you consider the ones they led to the Lord, possi- possibly hundreds of thousands that have come to the Lord uh, in Egypt. She also had a great appreciation for the presence of God. She seemed to appreciate the presence of God more than most people did. Uh, even back in those early days of the of Pentecost, and um, somebody asked her one time, uh, Mama Trasher, what was or Mama Lillian, what was the moment where you began to understand the presence of God, and what was the moment that was the most precious moment to you, uh, and made you have such a love for the for the presence of God? And this is what she said. She said it was in the middle of the night, sitting in my famous rocker. Um, It was was a great birthmark in Egypt, if Mama Lillian rocked you in her rocker. And uh, she said, one night while I was in that rocker, I just kind of leaned forward in prayer. And I felt the physical hand of God touch me on my back and shoulder. She said, I, it wasn't something I imagined. It wasn't something in the spirit. She said, I felt it. And I knew that I would never be the same after that touch from God. And they said, oh, wow. And, and they, they, people began to say, let's, let's pray for the touch of God. Let's, let's pray that God will touch us physically like he touched Mama Lillian. And this is, this is what she said. She said, well, you're probably going to have to get in the chair the same way I did. And they thought maybe there was a way you approached it in a spiritual way to sit. But this is what she said. Lillian Trasher had dozens of children, and and she would go through periods because of workers having to leave or whatever. She'd go through periods where she had dozens of children with no help. And she had one room for the crib babies. And I forget if it was a little more, a little less than two dozen crib babies. All of them wanted to be rocked to sleep. And of course she couldn't, you know, she'd rock one to sleep. The other crying ones would wake the ones asleep up. She said, I devised a little system of ropes and pulleys where when I rocked in my chair, I could rock, I forgot what it was, six or eight cribs at once. She said, that's what I was dealing with. And she said, let me tell you why God touched me. She said, I was so hopeless and so destitute that while I was rocking in that chair with crying babies and trying to get them all silenced, doing everything I knew to do, I said, Lord, you promised me you'd never leave me, you'd never forsake me. And she said, but Lord, I don't think you've been with me for a while. I think you have forsaken me. Every promise you've made to me is is seemingly laughing at me. I can't do this anymore. This is my last night. I can't do this anymore. Why have you left me? I understand why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And she said, I just was at the end of my life, I wanted to die. And I felt like God had absolutely forsaken me. And they said, what happened? And she said, that's when he touched me, physically touched me. And when he touched me, there was warmth and a a holiness and an aura that just settled and it washed away without anything anything being done to me or said to me. She said, it took away my doubt. It took away my fear. It took away my hopelessness. It took away my insecurity. She said, I sat there crying now, not because of hopelessness, but because I realized I must be God's very favorite child. He loved me so much. And then she said, and I heard him say, I'll never leave you. I've never forsaken you. You've never held one baby in which you were alone. She said, it changed my life. And they said, "Ah, that's what we want. And she said, are you willing to go through the wilderness to get there? You see, loved ones, I'm not fussing at you. We all have this tendency. We want all that God has. We just want it at a bargain price. He's calling you. He's calling you. He's saying a new age is upon you. And he has stopped us in the journey to say, this is why you've been through what you've been through. And you know what? You may still be going through it tomorrow. Lillian didn't have help show up for a while. But her perspective changed. Now she's seeing from heavenly places instead of an earthly one. I'm going to ask the ministry team to move into place here and over in Brown Chapel. Those of you that are live stream, if you want prayer, you'll see a number on the screen in just a moment that you can call. But loved ones... We're, we've made a decision here, and it's, not, it's just a decision we've made. We're not going to play games. We're not going to see how easy we can make it. We're not going to see how close we can get to the world. We've decided to follow Jesus. We've decided to walk with him in the fellowship of his sufferings. We're des- we've decided that Paul was right when he said nothing can separate us from the love of God. Angels, demons, life, death, principalities, powers, sickness, whatever it is, nothing can separate us. But we've also decided we're not going to be left in the wilderness any longer than we need to be. I thank God for the mountains. I thank God for the low places. I thank God for the trials that every one of us are going through right now. Some of you may feel like you're beginning to see victory. Some of you may feel like it's worse than it's ever been. But loved ones, you are enrolled in the university of the wilderness. You are enrolled in a place where God waits for you to see, I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. Would you stand with me? I know it's time for us to end our live stream, but I want to pray for everybody. Father, thank you for the ride on Mad Mouse. Thank you for pulling me close when I didn't think I wanted to be close. When I didn't think I needed to be close. Thank you for everything you've done that I understood and thank you for everything you've done that I have not understood. Thank you for protecting me from the work of the enemy. Thank you for showing us your perspective so that we're not scarred by it. Father, if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus that's watching or listening here, and they want to come home, Lord, let them either call or come forward to an altar worker. If there are those that are here and they need prayer, prayer for healing, for the miraculous, Lord, we believe that you are still the healer of all manner of sickness and disease. But Father, for everyone that's just needing to draw close, for everyone that wants to reap a harvest from the tears that they've cried. Draw us all close to you now. Do for all of us what we can accomplish ourselves. In Jesus' name, God bless you.